Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking to Elijah Stacy. I can confidently say that he is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. He has a pretty wonderful book published called A Small If, which he's going to talk to us about. And he speaks regularly about his take on life. He has the wisdom and the approach to life that you might expect from someone in their 70s or 80s. But Elijah is only 20 years old. He is on a mission to change the world, to cure diseases, to reduce suffering, and to inspire other people to overcome. It's the huge struggles that he's faced, the suffering that he's witnessed in his own family that has influenced him to develop an amazing mindset of tenacity and ambition and living every single day. He has some pretty important things to say, so let's get started. Hey, Elisha. Thanks for being here with us today. It's good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So you are the second youngest guest we've ever had, and you are fascinating. You're interesting. You are a young entrepreneur and businessman. You have written a book, and you do a lot of public speaking. You're doing some consulting at the uh, young age of 20. So we want to talk to you today about some of those accomplishments, but also what led you to that and what's been your motivation. Let's start with your book. I've read it, but I'm going to let you tell us about it. Thank you so much for all that. I appreciate it. But I wrote a small if, and it's a memoir about my life. And what's unique about the book is at the end of each chapter, I've included a life lesson that I believe can really benefit people become a better version of themselves, become more fulfilled, find more meaning and purpose in life, things like that. I started writing it when I was 16, finished writing it when I was 17, and then pandemic happened, all that, but we got it published when I was 20 years old. And this is just the beginning. I think this book is going to change the world. I think so too, Elijah. So you just talked about this and you have these 13 life lessons and these beautiful messages, but what makes it extra interesting is you just said it was 16. Tell me what life experience does a 16-year-old have to have that kind of wisdom, that kind of insight into life, that kind of experience that would lend itself to the really incredibly informational, motivational, inspirational, but also a heavy book, a lot of really rich but heavy content. Tell us a little bit about the background of this book and how it came to be, why it came to be, what's gone on in your life that allowed you to have the experience that was worthy of a pretty long, impressive book. I've suffered a lot in my life, and I think that one of the deep beliefs that I have is that people that suffer a lot or go through a lot of adversity have a deeper understanding of life. They they. They think more deeply about things. That's my belief. And so I was born with a genetic disease called a shin muscular dystrophy. And I had to walk on my tippy toes because, you know, your muscles are getting weaker. 
So I'd fall to the floor frequently and people would always ask me, why you walk like that? So that right there, just having that attention that you're different or things like that and falling to the floor and having to get up, you know, it's beautiful in some sense because it's symbolic. When you go through all of that, while at the same time being raised by a head football coach and being competitive and really into sports, that does a lot for you. But then, you know, at the age of 11, you lose your ability to walk. That's going to, that changes everything as well. You know, having to use a wheelchair full time. And now you're really different because you stick out. Not only did I have that going on, but my brother Max was born with a heart problem. And normally the surgery has like a 99% success rate or something like that. And the surgery didn't go well. And so he had a massive stroke and that led to him being cognitively delayed, needing a feeding tube eventually, confined to his bed, full-time nurse, all these things and, and constantly going to the hospital. Later in your teenage years, you lose mobility in your arms. That's a whole nother set of challenges starting junior high. That's very life-changing for anybody, but to do it while in a wheelchair with this disease, with your brother in the hospital, with all these things going on, that's a whole nother beast. And then you start high school as well. You do the high school thing, figuring out what you want to do with your life. And then eventually, for me at least, I learned that the disease is fatal and that just puts your life into a whole different perspective. And you think about things totally different especially considering that it's, you know, age of 25, average lifespan. I want to back up to a couple of things you shared with us. Your life has been filled with some pretty significant hardships. You talked about falling. So boys with Duchenne, typically when they're early elementary, as the body is, is weakening, especially the legs, they start to fall down. I talk about often my son, Joseph, who's now 19, he has Duchenne. This isn't just, oh, I fell on the playground. You crumble to the ground with no warning. Your legs just give out. So it's not the same as just an eight-year-old running around playing and they trip and fall. This is literally a brutal, just sudden, unexpected, you just your legs give out. It's one of the hallmarks of the progression of the disease is the the bruises and the cuts and the scrapes and just the heartbreak of that. So I do think there's a beautiful parallel to that falling stage in Duchenne and the whole notion of you saying, I think there's a an old proverb that says, fall down seven times, get up eight, that obviously references resiliency and, and tenacity. When you were in that stage, you were losing physical ability and your dad's career was focused on physical abilities of his team. He's a head football coach at a big high school in California. And you hung out there. You were there all the time with your dad. So talk to me a little bit about that and how that's influenced you. Yeah. So I started going to practice with him when I was about five years old. I absolutely love football. I would study all the plays. I'd follow him around on the field. I didn't care how tired I'd get. I talked to all the players. I'd even go in the weight room with him, trying to lift weights and stuff. So I did all kinds of stuff. I wanted to be these big high school kids, you know, at five years old. But I think that definitely shaped me into the person I am today to be competitive and ambitious and to try and always get better and try and solve problems because that's what you do as an athlete is you always try to get better. And a lot of being an athlete comes back to mindset, how you view things, how you're going to do things in your mind. That's where it all starts. So yeah, that had a, a, a huge impact on me for sure. And I, I want to take, you know, no for an answer. I remember on the track, that's where the football field is. I asked my dad, how many laps around is a mile? He said four, but you know, you really need to sit down today. Don't be wearing yourself out. I said, I'll see you later. And I went around <laughs> the whole track, the whole practice until I made it because I'd love to just prove 
people, I love to beat expectations. If people think I can't do something, I'm going to do it. I love that, Elijah. And I can't think of a greater example than football of a game of determination and grit and the epitome of teamwork and cohesiveness and determination. And so when I first started reading your book, I thought about, gosh, what a great example that must have been for you to be hanging out at the football field with your dad all the time. And I think about what a great role model your dad was. And I think about what a great example the whole experience of football was. But what I'm really curious about because I think sometimes things work in reverse, or at least they're reciprocal. Do you think that just by you being there and what you did, hanging out on the sidelines, your determination just to be there with your dad, do you think that you were a role model for the team and maybe even for your dad? I definitely think so. Uh, My dad definitely took a lot of inspiration from it. Um, I actually have a specific story. We were at the all-star game and I believe we were down 28 to zero at halftime. And I write about this in the book and the team, they go to the locker room and half. and I'm like, no, we're not going to lose. I don't care. That's an all-star game or not. We're not going to lose. I was like eight or nine at this time. So it's even harder to walk. You're getting older. So it's getting, the disease is progressing or whatever. The locker room was up on a hill type of thing. So you'd have to go up, you'd have to walk up a hill, a steep hill. And that's, that's even harder to do on your tippy toes. And I was like, no, I'm going in there because I need to know what we're going to do. So I climb up the whole thing. I find my dad. I walk into the locker room. Everybody gets silent. I look at my dad. I said, so dad, what are we going to do? How are we going to win this game? (laughs) And because they're just kind of messing around, you know, because it's an all-star game. And my dad's, wow, okay, he walked all the way up here. So then people got out their white, the coaches got out their whiteboard and they actually started doing stuff. And it became this beautiful thing. And we actually would come back and win that game in overtime. And so it was one of the highlights of uh, my dad's career, I would say. And yeah. I definitely did inspire them. We won an all-star game because of me. (laughs) Because of your tenacity and your determination. And I will say, Elijah, I think you could be a play-by-play announcer. I'm like, you know, and I know Elijah wants to be a motivational speaker, but I think he could call games. You tell it in such great detail and about how you guys came back from that huge deficit into the second half and and went ahead and, and won the game, which is pretty amazing. I heard you interviewed on a news channel and you talked about your awareness of the severity of your disease of Duchenne, its potential to be fatal in your 20s. And you said something so profound that I'm in awe that at your age, you have this grace. And you said in the interview, death is the greatest motivator. Talk to us about that. Yes. Oh, I love this. This is good. Death is the greatest motivator and death is super important. There's the saying that the ancient Stoics, I'm a philosophy nerd. There's a saying that the ancient Stoics would say, that's a Latin phrase. It's memento mori, which means remember you have to die. And so they would say this over and over again. And it's really important that you will die one day. A lot of young people in particular, if I was going to pick a demographic, They act as if they're going to live forever and they don't really take death so seriously. They kind of have this attitude of, yeah, everybody else dies, but not me. And so when you do that, though, you don't value your time. You don't value your life if you don't value your time. And why is that? Supply and demand, right? This is how I break it down. If something is in high demand, which is life, is time, and there's a limited supply of it, it's very valuable. If something is scarce and in demand, it's very valuable. You're going to then value it. 
But a lot of young people, we got it mixed up. We What we do is we all have unlimited time. And so therefore, it's not that valuable. So then you'll find yourself doing things that are not that meaningful, not that purposeful. And you kind of just go about your day. I reject that. I think that, no, I like to remember about death, not be obsessed about death, right? There's a difference. And enjoy my life, but do things that are meaningful and purposeful so that if I'm going to die tomorrow, I could say I gave life everything I had. So I'm, I'm satisfied with it. I give it what was in my control. And what I would add to this conversation is that you really can't start living life until you're ready to die. It's when you're ready to die that you're ready to start living life. So Elijah, I think that at your young age to have that perspective is impressive. I've been an adult for a long time, and I can tell you that I still have to remind myself of that. And I know people who just don't have an awareness. And I think that culturally, we are so hesitant in in the United States, at least, to talk about death and the fact that we all have an expiration date. Most of us have no idea when it is. We just don't know. And so we take it for granted. I think that is such a gift to all of us for you to remind us of that. So you talk a lot about your life and what you're going to do with it, and you talk about it being meaningful. What does that look like to you? Tell us what a meaningful life would mean to Elijah Stacy. Yeah, I like that question a lot. I think that something that is meaningful, right, is something that serves other people, that makes people's lives better. I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. He wrote this book, huge book, huge TED Talk as well, but for this book, uh, Start With Why. And so he says to find, why do you do what you do? A lot of people, if you ask them, why do you do this job? They say, oh, I do it to make a living. And he argues, that's not good enough. That's that's not good enough. It's why do you do this instead of that for money? And I went on a huge introspection journey to find my why. And so my why is this. It's to minimize human suffering and propel human prosperity so that humanity can have a better quality of life. And so what that looks like is when I say minimize human suffering, that looks like curing genetic diseases. That looks like helping somebody with their depression or anxiety or some type of negative philosophy that they have that's holding them back in life. And propelling human prosperity is advancing things that can help people like medicines or motivating them to go live a more fulfilling life, a more driven life, right? And together, when we do these things, I'm trying to create a world that has a better quality of life for humanity. So I want to make everybody's life better, better quality. And so that's a meaningful life to me if I could do that. But what's not meaningful to me is only, and, and only is the keyword, only playing video games, only watching movies all the time, just going to parties all the time, just doing things that are temporary pleasures that won't necessarily make somebody else's life better. And won't add fulfillment to your life, right? It's only a temporary pleasure. Those things are cool and all, but the lasting fulfillment comes from serving others. And that's the key. And you'll be more satisfied with your life if you chase fulfillment. Elijah, are your mom and dad ever in awe of you like I am? Did they ever look at you and think, where'd this kid come from? I think they're very proud of me for sure. And I'm very proud to have them as parents, I must say. They, they raised me with everything they had. And I'm very thankful for, for my parents. Truly, I know how much they, they put into us boys. They had all boys. So I'm very grateful for them. You said a family of boys, a family of four boys, your oldest brother, Will, and then you have two younger brothers. So Elijah, I mentioned this, I have a son with Duchenne and I have another older son and an older daughter. It's my youngest who has Duchenne. And 
that in and of itself, just one child with a rare disease is sometimes pretty heavy stuff to navigate. But in your family, there are three of you with Duchenne, three boys with Duchenne. And Max, as you mentioned, had some really special needs based on a surgery that didn't go go quite as well as hoped when he was a baby. Tell me about life with brothers, all that going on in your household. Yeah. If we start with Will, he's the oldest and he's completely healthy. He's actually fireman and he's in the military. He just got married. Then you have me, I have Duchenne. And then you have Max. He had, like you said, some very special needs. He had Duchenne as well. He passed away 2019 on January 3rd. And that's that's the whole experience itself. And then we have Kai, who is 14, and he has Duchenne as well. And he's in a he's in a power wheelchair and everything like that. But having all brothers is pretty interesting. I write in the end of my book, I write that. One of my dreams in life is to get married and to, is to, and to have a little girl. And I think I want a little girl because I was raised with all brothers. Yeah, yeah, I want to change it up. But yeah, we're all different in a lot of ways, which is pretty interesting. Will, he's more of a hands-on type of guy. And he's more quiet than I am. I'm loud and out there, rah, 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 flashy, ambitious, writing books and speaking and out there. And Max, with everything that he had, Max definitely had a personality. He knew all of our voices. He knew when you're talking to him, he loved music. That was the one thing he loved. Max could be a whole philosophical lesson. It's himself. Like he had so little, but he was so happy. He was the happiest of us all. He loved being around his family and we'd take him to the beach, lay him on the beach and you'd hear the ocean and maybe he'd put on music for him. He loved that. So that's Max. And then Kaya, he likes to do crafts and draw and paint and play video games. He has the VR. I always make fun of him for that. I'm young, but I feel old because I'm like, I remember when he said, don't stand (laughs) too close to the TV. It's going to hurt your eyes. Mm -hmm. Now we literally put the TV like on your eyes. On your face. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, what is he doing? Yeah, that's all of us. But the one thing about all of us is we all love to eat food. So (laughs) we're going to get good food. That's for certain. I love it. Here's what I find really touching and just a testament to your personality and your character is when I think about three boys with Duchenne, I think about just what it takes on the part of your mom and your dad to care for you guys and to really just get through each day with what needs to happen. But you talk about when Max when Max was really sick and in the hospital and he wasn't doing well, you were trying or being independent. You were... You were taking care of your other little brother, Kai, and trying to make sure that your mom and dad would be okay at the hospital. So you yourself, in a wheelchair, losing the ability to walk, you're trying to keep a burden off of your mom and dad and to to allow them to be where they needed to be. Tell us a little bit about that time in your life. Yeah, you know, I want to help my parents, and I write a lot in the book but I don't see myself as disabled. I'm not delusional in the sense that I don't think I'm in a wheelchair and have a disability, but I don't limit myself to, oh, I'm disabled, so I guess I can't do it. I have this challenge, but how can I you know, do things in a different way to still accomplish the, the result I want? And so I bring this up because taking care of Kai, you know, I thought I'm going to figure a way to do this. Let's Uber food to the house so that we can both eat and Let's have them put it on the chair out front so I could reach it. And then when they leave, I'll go outside the door, grab the food, come back in the house and give us food for the day. Let me play video games with you because I know you like, you know, keep your mind off of things. Let me call my friends and they'll come over. They'll bring us food and we'll all hang out and have a good time. 
let's do those things. And that's what I did. I would go on walks with Kai, which is ironic because we're both in wheelchairs. So we would, you know, go on strolls in the street or whatever. But why though, right? Why? I want to take a load off my parents. I'm a huge believer in self-sacrifice. You have to sacrifice sometimes. And that really does give you fulfillment. I'm inspired by the the teachings of, of Jesus. And so that's one of the major things is to be self-sacrificing. But I wanted to help my parents because they're losing their son, my brother, and trying to take care of him. The least I could do is try and take us off of their backs and stay at the house so that they can go to the hospital and stuff like that. Elijah, how old were you at this stage when you were trying to take the, the weight off of for your mom and dad? I was 17 and then I turned 18. Yeah. So, Elijah, I'm just so sorry, and it's just so happy to hear you talk about Max and the loss of, you call him your baby brother. But there was another something, I don't want to say it was a burden, but there was something you managed, you took care of for your mom and dad, and you write about it in the book. And it was that when Max did finally succumb, Max passed away, you spoke at your baby brother's funeral. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that very vividly. So I... Spoke at the funeral and and I thought, okay, if I'm gifted with this ability to speak well, I'm going to give him the best speech I could possibly give. And the best speeches aren't ones that are worded all special and whatever. That's important too, to be articulate, but it's speeches that come from the heart, that move people, that convey emotion. And so I I wrote a speech. I didn't even read it to anybody. I just delivered the message. And yeah, that was important. That was important for me to do it. And it's a very weird feeling that I... You roll in there and you see the casket sitting right there and it's that's your brother inside of there and like you see the photos of him and all these people showed up for him and it was very interesting because my mom I know how much she loved him and how much she cried and everything but like at the funeral like she wasn't crying which is so interesting to me but I know that deep down inside she was destroyed but like the amount of strength that she had to to persevere that day to go through that whole thing is is remarkable and me at the time I remember tearing up but what really was in the back of my mind is I I cannot let this happen again to my parents and I've been on a mission to cure my disease and so I'm thinking to myself I can't let this happen again Mm -hmm. and I can't let other parents have to go through this because there's no words that describe a parent literally there's no words that describe a parent that lost a child and it's something that is very deeply impacted me and something that I, I can resonate now. But yeah, that was definitely one of the most impactful things on my life for sure is watching him pass away. And, you know, to see my dad like that, I've never seen my dad like that before, to see him tear up, to see him be that sad. It teaches you a lot about life. And you know what it really taught me? I have to add this. What it really taught me is I always knew my parents loved me for certain, but to see how sad they were when they lost Max, it really made me see, wow, okay, they really do love us, like to another level that I didn't know. Yeah, that's a great observation. It makes sense, Elijah, because I'm a mom, and I can tell you that there are no words to describe a parent that loses a child. There isn't a word in our language, but I'm also not sure there's a way to describe the depth of our love for our kids and what that is. There are parts of it that really are indescribable. Yeah, and you articulate it so well and explain it in such a beautiful way from your perspective of watching them suffer with the loss of your little brother. You said when you were describing 
what happened watching your parents. At the funeral and with the loss of your little brother, you said that you never wanted them to have to go through that again. Tell me how that changed things for you and what that looked like. Well, it's just great motivation to keep doing what I'm doing with Destroy to Shin, the nonprofit, with this book. I hold the belief that we are very close to curing genetic diseases. It's within our reach. And there is no good reason, in my opinion, that we shouldn't get this done. Humanity shouldn't have to go through diseases like this anymore. There's no good reason. We just need to advance that science. We have to get it done fast. And I believe we can. I believe it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of dedication. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of things to get this done. But it's possible. I agree. I agree a thousand percent. We can, you know, put a man on the moon. We can fix some of these diseases. It's, I would say it's not a matter of money because I think there's enough money in the world. It's a matter of priorities. How we spend our time and how we spend our money is just a reflection of what our priorities are. And I believe that if people really dedicated themselves and and budgets to this, we've got the brain power. A hundred percent. I totally agree with you. And it's just so awesome because when I say diseases, I'm I'm not like, not just a shin. I'm saying like, let's go for all these genetic diseases. There's technology is now here. We have the, the knowledge. We have to just tweak it and improve upon it. And we have to be able to deliver this technology in an effective and safe way. That's really the challenge for to Shen, but we can get this done. And I believe that we should have a lot of hope and optimism that we can get this done. I agree. So Elijah, I would be remiss if we didn't go back to the title of your book called A Small If. So can you give us a short summary of where that title came from and what it was in your life that was happening? Because it's pretty extraordinary. Yes, yes. So a small if, so where this where the title comes from. At the time, I was 16 years old and I was at the doctor's. Love my doctor. I'm actually going to go see him soon. My spine was becoming more and more curved. So scoliosis was starting to occur. And my doctor said, I got off the x-ray table. He said, hey, we talked about spinal surgery in the past, but now I'm going to really push for you to have it now. Now like, we're here. You need it now. Your spine is in such a bad state. So it's too curved to where it's getting dangerous. It could crush your organs. It could cause all these problems on you. I'm going to have to push for you to have the spinal surgery. And I'm sitting in my mind, eh, I'm not going to have it. And so I look over to my left. I see my mom. She's crying. My doctor's handing her tissue as he explains this. And my dad's got his head down. And I'm thinking, no, I'm just not going to have it. I say, okay, let's just say I don't have the surgery. Let's just say I choose not to have it. Like literally, I just say, no, I'm not having the surgery. Can I do that? And he said, yeah, you could do that. But as your doctor, you know, I got to put my foot down and really push for you to have the surgery. And I said, okay. So, well, what if I somehow reverse the curve in my spine? Then could I avoid having to have the surgery? And he tells me, look, I don't want to give you any false hope, but because I know you and your character, I will give you a small if. That's if you're able to do it, you don't have to have the surgery. That's all I needed to hear. There's a possibility. If there's a possibility, I'm going to do it. And so from that day forward, I signed up for physical therapy, went to the best, one of the best physical therapy places in the world. I dedicated myself to losing weight, swore off eating sweets, swore off doing all these things. I was doing everything I possibly could to make this happen because one, I don't want to have the surgery, but number two, I want to do what somebody doesn't think is possible. So 
I taught myself how to cook. I would drive the wheelchair in one hand, the joystick, carry the pan in the other hand. I'd meal prep. I'd make these really good rice, chicken, asparagus, broccoli bowls, and I would just eat those. I even hung a picture of my curved spine, the x-ray. I hung it up on my wall, and I'd look at it every single day to, to set the, the mindset that this is what I need to focus on, and I'd visualize myself being successful. And what I did is I visualized myself being uh, successful that after the doctor's appointment, we'd go to Newport. And we'd go to this, the Shake Shack and it's right on the coast, beautiful view. And they have these great shakes. And I visualized myself drinking an Oreo shake and just celebrating. So anyways, did a lot of physical therapy, a lot of stretching. And, and when I was there, it, it would hurt a lot. Sometimes I'd bite down on my shirt, but I wanted to pull this off more than I wanted to avoid the pain. Three months later, I'm fired up. I'm juiced. We're going to the doctors. I got my headphones on. I, I always tell people I'm an athlete in a wheelchair. Like I was raised by a head football coach. I have the whole athlete persona to me. So I'm going there and I'm like, my spine is straight. I know I'm going to walk out of here today with a straight spine. I don't have to get the surgery. I'm going to do it. So I go in there get off the x-ray table. I'm clapping my hands, making noise. The, the x-ray <laughs> people are probably like, this kid is insane. <laughs> and so I get off the x-ray table and I walk by and I, I look over my doctor's looking up at something and he's just looking at it like in awe. He's like, wow. And I'm like, that's gotta be my x-ray. So then I go in the room, the x-ray is already pulled up and I look at him like that's straighter. That's straighter. I can see it. That's straighter. <laughs> but I said, okay, look, but we don't celebrate till the clock hits zero. Let the doctor come in. And I'm videotaping the whole thing. I got it on selfie mode. And yeah, your your back is straighter. He's well done. You pulled it off. I give him knuckles. I I go out of there. We're celebrating. He's all happy. He's thrilled for me. He doesn't want me to have the surgery either. How did I end the day? In Newport with an Oreo shake in, in Newport, Crystal Cove, looking over the ocean. So that's the story of a small lift. And honestly, that is really the theme of my life. It's always, oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. There's a small possibility you could do it. And I go and do it. And so I, I honestly, I love when people say you can't do it. It's the mountains too tall to climb, not too tall to climb. I don't care. <laughs> Elijah, I have to wonder a little bit if the motivation was not having surgery or it was actually Oreo milkshakes. I'm seeing a big smile and hearing a lot of laughter about a milkshake. And that's motivating to me too. So you have 13 life lessons, beautiful stories. We'd already talked about the football stories, the stories about your brothers, some personal stories about you that you write. And then every one of them, there's a, a life lesson and you do a beautiful summary. There are 13 of them. Do you have a favorite of the life lessons in there? They're all so important to me because they're all so different, right? They're all they like sure. tools. Okay. How about if I pick, can I pick one? Go ahead. So you have some in here like gratitude, which I know is very popular and for all of us to talk about today, but be a leader to someone I think is pretty profound. What does that mean? Yeah. So be a leader to someone. So what that means is you don't have to be the CEO of a company or the president or the prime minister or be in this huge leadership position but you can be a leader to somebody. So like for me, for example, I'm a natural leader to my brother, Kai. I have to shin, I'm older than him. I'm going down this path first, but I get to teach him everything that I'm learning and all the adaptations I'm making and all the mindsets I'm having to overcome this disease. And so I'm a natural leader to him. So I, I lead Kai. You could be a leader to two people, three people. You could be a leader to a million people as well. But I think in life, everybody should recognize that they are a leader to somebody. You are leading somebody in some type of way, whether you know it or not, you are a leader at, at, at some point of your life. Elijah, you are obviously incredibly positive, really motivated, full of energy and, and life. Do you ever have a bad day? 
Oh, for certain. Yeah, there's tons of bad days for certain. I wake up with some shoulder pain and that really sucks. I don't like the physical pain this disease is causing now. That wasn't always present for me. It's starting to become more present where I wake up with a lot of achiness and whatever, but I'm a problem solver. So even when, yeah, it's a bad day, I go, okay, how can I fix this? Hot water, let's stretch out. But yeah, there's certainly bad days. I'm not trying to be overly positive, but the bad days make the the good days even better because it, you know, it puts things in perspective. We talk about what Duchenne takes away from boys and young men. Obviously, the ability to walk is the you know one of the most profound and pronounced things because it's so visually impactful and and it affects your life so much. So we talk about the ability to walk, the ability to use your you know upper body, losing upper body strength, using your arms. We talk about how it takes away heart function and lung function, lots of grief and loss in the Duchenne journey. But would you say that Duchenne has given you anything? Oh, for certain. For certain. The the weaker I become, the stronger I become in terms of my character and mindset. So I may be physically weak, but my character and mentality is so much stronger every time. I think that when you're really stripped down of the physical, you become more in line with things that really matter. You can call that spirituality, you call it whatever you want, but you value things so much more. I value people so much more. I value a lot more things because of Duchenne. Elijah, you touch so many people and you inspire so many people with your words, just the life that you live. Who inspires you? Yeah, there's a lot of people that inspire me. I have a long list and they're all in different categories, but a lot of role models. Elijah, if you think about everybody who inspires you, is there something they all have in common? That's a really good question. They're definitely people who think different. That's for certain. They all think different. They don't just do what everybody else is doing. They think different. They're not afraid to have ideas that people might call them crazy or challenging. What Steve Jobs said, I'll paraphrase, I forgot the direct quote, but he said, the people that you call crazy or whatever, if someone calls you crazy, that's a compliment because the people that are crazy enough are the ones that usually change the world. He says something along the lines of that. And and I think he was right about that. And so Steve Jobs would be another inspiration of mine for sure. I feel like when you repeat the that quote from Steve Jobs that it really applies to you in changing the world. As we wrap things up here, I'm I'm curious about a couple of things. What does a good life look like to you? You ask really good questions. I think a good life that's achievable for everybody and it, and and it includes me is prioritizing your character. This is lesson 13. How you choose to live your life. Are you going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? Are you going to quit? Are you going to persevere? I think that's a good life. Now, that's more my philosophical answer. My more practical answer is I love being around people. I don't really care what we're doing. I love being around people. I love to laugh. I love to watch sports. I love to eat good. Taco Tuesday with my friend Jesse, going with her, going with my other friends, the guys. I love being around people. I take a deep interest in people. So I think that's the good life to me. Going on a walk on the beach, hearing the ocean, seeing, you know, God's creation, seeing just being outside with people, hearing the birds, like that, the little things in life, that's a good life to me. Like the cheapest things in life are honestly sometimes the best things, I think, right? The things that are free, like it doesn't really take a lot of money to do what really is enjoyable. And so for me, a good life is to be around people, to eat good food, to laugh, to accomplish things, to do work that you're proud of and to live morally correct. I think that would be my short answer of what a good life is. 
Beautifully said, Elijah. What do you hope your legacy will be? I have no clue yet. I think that because it's so big, like I'd want to say, I hope I play a huge role in curing my disease. I hope that I inspire millions of people. I hope that I make people believe that they can do anything when they come across my content and they come across my work. I hope that I'm a husband. I want to raise a little girl, as I said. I want her to be successful and believe in herself and feel loved and cared for. I hope to be a great friend to my friends. I hope to be a great son to my parents, a great brother to my brothers. I hope to be a great citizen to my fellow citizens. I'm very interested in going into politics. Maybe I can change things in the government. I think that a lot of people would like to see things change in the government. I think we need more high character individuals in politics, to say the least. Yeah, so I want my legacy to be a lot of things. I'm going to write more books. I'm going to give more speeches. I know that for sure. Elijah, let's look ahead 100, 200 years from now. And somebody picks up a copy of your book, an electronic version, or they see a video, an interview you did 100 years from now, and they say, wow, that Elijah Stacy really what? He was really different. He was really ambitious. He really changed the world. Yeah, I think we just predicted the future, Elijah. I think that's what it's going to be when people look back. I sure hope so. Elijah, thanks for being here with me today. It is absolutely my pleasure. You have so much good to say. I could talk to you for hours. I'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.